Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Here, Captain Chris with Chaz Champagne, the owner and uh, maker of Matrix Shad Lures, a good friend of mine, and we're actually here at the Biloxi Boat Show. So, Chaz, welcome to the show, bud. Great to see you, Chris. This is actually nice for me because I get to sit down and talk fishing with you instead of unboxing all of those boxes and lifting all that heavy stuff while they're out there doing it. So I'm getting the easy job right now. I know, bud. And so, yeah, as we kind of gear up for this weekend it's a really busy weekend for all of us and the good thing is the biloxi boat show is kind of where we started but outside of that that's kind of where our connection really started was right here in the biloxi area when i was living here is uh, fishing in the biloxi area with you know station at keesler and doing all that stuff so but before we get into that i uh, always ask the guests just to kind of tell us a little bit about themselves so bud go tell us a little bit about yourself yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Pearl River, Louisiana, and I grew up on a little, like a perch bass pond. We had a small, like one acre pond behind the house, and my parents tell stories of me all the time of, you know, most kids, you had to drag them out of bed to go to school, and some mornings, which sometimes that happened too, but a, a lot of mornings, they would be looking for me in bed and I'd already be up fishing in the mornings and dressed ready, not really so much ready to go to school, but just wanted to be dressed so I could get a little fishing in before school happened. And then after I left there around 12 years old and we moved on to some canals and like Pontchartrain and my, uh, I remember for a Christmas present one time I got a little 12 foot flat boat. And my rules were to not, I can't leave the canals. And I was, uh, I'm sorry, it was a 16 foot flat, but I was 12 years old. And my rule was I couldn't leave the canals. And that's all I did every day was just live on that boat up and down the canals, caught the fish that I could, I could kind of catch. I really wasn't taught how to fish correctly at that age. My parents weren't big fishermen, nor grandparents really. I just kind of was self-taught at that age and we just, me and my friends, we just lived on that boat. It's all we did. And it's funny, you watch these kids nowadays and I, you almost got to drag them to be out on a boat. Everybody's glued to their tablets or iPhones or inside to a game or a computer. And we, uh, we just lived in the sun when I was growing up. Yeah. And it's the same with me, man. I mean, in Port Salt, Louisiana, actually before that I shared a little bit and I was here in Mississippi in, in the kiln. And so had access to a pond. My, my parents had some, had some land here in the kiln and we had a pond and same situation, you know, it was always bread balls, red and white bobber, you know, catching yeah. brim till the yeah. fricking <laughs> sun went down. Bread. <laughs> I know, man, but, um, it, it was awesome. And, and so I guess that's where it really starts, right? Is the fishing really the addiction? And I talked to Doc Weiss, who you know very well is it starts at a, an incredibly young age. And so for you, though, I mean, when did you really start targeting, like, trout and fishing and becoming the prince of the ponch train? Yeah, I called you that. Yeah, uh, yeah, Doc, for sure, I would say. 
has the biggest addiction of fishing I've ever seen. Like he's got it as bad at his age as I see some of these 10 or 12 year olds or people like you and I, but my, it really, where I started really learning what I was doing. So I got my first little job was at the local fishing spot and off of the Pontchartrain basin and all of the big time anglers like Dudley and Krieger and this guy named Terry Googans, that was their hangout. And they, they all kind of took me under their wing. I went on and I would save up like birthday money or any kind of money at that job or any, any dollar I could scrape. I'd always save it up and I'd spend it on going on charters with people like Dudley and Kenny. My first trip ever in Lake Pontchartrain was with, uh, with Kenny Krieger, who, uh, actually holds the second largest trout in the history of Louisiana called on the highway 11 bridge. But anyway, so I learned some stuff from him and then I did some stuff with Dudley and they all do their own thing. And when I really, really started learning a lot is Terry worked at that store with me and he was extremely, he's extremely knowledgeable and one of the better artificial fishermen I've ever been with. And since we worked together, him and I just became real good friends where we actually fished together two, three, four days a week. And when you're with somebody that's been doing it 30, 40 years and they're doing, bringing you two, three, four days a week, you really learn. And he's fishes from sunup to sundown. He's one of the hardest fishermen I've ever been with. Even days I was happy to be off the water by 10 or 11. We're still grinding it till two or three in the afternoon. Yeah. And so funny story though, Terry Guggins. And I, I didn't realize that y'all's connection was then. And so I ran into Terry Guggins when I fished here, when I lived back here in Biloxi. And so I would fish a little bayou on the west side of the state by the Silver Slipper Casino <laughs> to be nameless now, nonetheless. And so I would see uh, Terry there. And and so he had his little, um, it was a little Kenner? No, it was a little Pathfinder. Pathfinder. Yeah, 19-foot Pathfinder. And he'd be in that bayou, and me and Pops would be fishing in there, and all of a sudden Terry Guggins would roll up. And the way that guy worked the jig was just remarkable. And so everybody's talking about the Pontchartrain Pop. Well, here he comes, dude, around the bend. And there he is just fitting. And for the first time, I think, or for the last time that I can truly remember, he just straight put it on us with Shrimp Creole and Bayou Caddy, man. I mean, he just killed it. And so that's interesting that you had such a uh, direct uh, connection with really some really legendary anglers here in the southeast Louisiana coast. Yeah, right. And what Terry's expertise really was that, I mean, he, he knows a lot of stuff from deep water jigging trout to a cork with crappies, like an incredible crappie angler too, bass too. He, his, his knowledge was pretty wide, but his real expertise is at deep water jigging, which, you know, like the Pontchartrain pop, a lot of people think now that we're, we do a lot of YouTube stuff, they see it now with me doing it, but I'm like far from the first person that ever did that. Uh, Terry may, I would have to say Terry Dudley Krieger, those three guys were some of the originators of fishing the bridges and like Pontchartrain using your trolling motor with like a bass pattern, a lot of cast covering water. That was more of a live bait, dead bait, and a lot of trolling with that lead core line that's been around for a while, but dropping the trolling motor down, fishing a jig on the bottom. Those guys were the originators of really utilizing a trolling motor and boat positioning and angles of a cast and all of that, that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, nobody even thought that deeply into fishing, but they take a bass fishing 
mentality and you approach it into a saltwater um, fishery. And no matter if it's the bridges or out we're in the South Texas where you like to go or whatever, you bring bass fishing tactics into a saltwater estuary, you're going to be one step ahead of the game. And it, because that's just so such an advanced technique. And when, if you saw Terry and Caddy really wearing them out, the reason is that's deep and that is his thing. Deep water jigging is his thing. And that's, you know, a lot of fishermen like you and other anglers, if it's shallow water grass flats, popping cork stuff, top water, I'm all ears. Like I got, we all have stuff to learn, but the one thing I feel like I got enough hours in to where I kind of don't even want to change any technique is that deep water jigging. I mean, it's day in and day out. 90% of the fishing we do is 10 to 15 foot of water with a heavy jig open face jig head on a whether a dart tail lure or a plastic paddle tail or whatever it might have been so yeah and so so run us through a little bit because we have anglers who are listening from virginia down to south texas and so they may not understand truly the pontchartrain complex i grew up on the south shore i mean i fished the causeway we live right there actually off the causeway and so we got the bump out there a little bit even though we fished kind of the delta we would still, when the trout were kind of running in the springtime, we would still go fish the causeway, me and Pops, uh, when before they closed Seabrook and all that jazz, right? And so I'm a little bit more familiar. But tell people a little bit more about the like uniqueness the of right. the Pontchartrain complex. Yeah, so like like you said, Virginia or something like that, which I've never been, I've never fished that estuary, but I personally enjoy traveling around maybe i'll go into a bait shop and ask like the owner hey where's a good area to target but i like just going completely blind a lot of times i very rarely now like go with a charter in another area i just like to go blind see if i can figure it out and what i typically figure out first is a deep water spot if it's like a shallow grass flat or something i struggle with that i gotta kind of learn it it's not what i'm used to fish are very smart in that shallow water especially these areas like texas florida virginia they got a lot of big trout very intelligent fish you know louisiana trout are probably the easiest to catch in the country but um the key to the deep water stuff so let's say i went to virginia and found like an industrial canal a man-made thing that had like 30 foot of water in the middle with nice 5 to 15 foot drop off something similar to like Gulfport Harbor here. So when you cast it out, we're not making real long casts because the water's so deep, you know, you're going to make like a 30 yard cast or something like that. And you got to literally wait for the bait to get to the bottom. And I always say it's about a second for every foot of depth to hit the bottom. If you're using like a three eighths ounce jig head, which is pretty standard for anywhere from eight to 15 foot. And when a lot of people just don't know how to, understand when the bait hits the bottom and one of the key things to do is to watch that little light bow in your line when the lures fall into the bottom a lot of people use braid nowadays where your sensitivity is a little bit better um i like braid that's fine uh the people in Pontchartrain that do use braid they usually use a visible braid such as a white or a yellow and then tie like a fluorocarbon leader to it that way they can actually see the line all so because you want to be able to feel it and see it a lot of times like if a trout if the lures fall into the bottom after a series of pops and a fish hits it but he hits it and swims towards you on the reaction hit you're not going to feel that because there's no resistance there because he swim he inhaled the lure and swam to you but you might see your line do something different whether it slides left or right 
or just an amount of slack happens too abruptly, a lot of times I see it. And with, you know, with bass stuff or a real calm lake or whatever, you it's not as turbulent out there. But saltwater, a lot of days we're fishing uh, half a foot to a foot chop with a, you know, one knot current. So those two variables on top of 15 foot of water, it can be really, really tricky to feel it. I mean, there's a lot of days where I feel zero bites and I just kind of see a lot of them. And another reason people's like, well, why do y'all pop the lure so hard? I think a lot of times, you know, when we, when they're not biting it hard and it's real turbulent out there and we're popping that lure real vigorously, we might not have felt the bite, but that when I pop it real hard, it's almost like a miniature hook set. And if I feel any resistance, I just keep coming back over my head and set the hook. And, you know, when we swing and a miss and it really wasn't a, a bite, like I always say, hook sets are free. If you feel anything that's off, you just set the hook. And if you set on air and it really wasn't even a fish, all you got to do is pause and let the bait go back to the bottom. So Although you might look a little crazy setting the hook, it's still like you're moving the lure at least. And the key is to pause it and let it go back to the bottom now. So fish and pondry, I mean, that's one thing that I, I struggle with. And so not necessarily fish and pondry, but really the deep water jigging aspect of it. I mean, I could throw a jerk bait. I can fish a corky really well. I think I can, you know, top water, all that stuff like you t- mentioned in terms of shallow water complexes only because I kind of, I kind of grew up doing that, but you know, the, the deep water stuff, the kind of first true exposure was obviously out at the causeway, but then outside of that really kind of honing that skill in a little bit more fishing these deep water bayous here in Mississippi when I moved back. And so that was one thing that I really struggle with, but on the same token is it's incredibly productive in you see those guys trolling and you might just be butted up to a bank casting a cross current and letting that kind of tide take your bait down. And all of a sudden you can, again, working it real slow, keeping contact with your bait and keeping contact with the bottom, letting that bait kind of swing into the zone and then those fish hit it. But on the same token is it's such a subtle and gentle and light bite that you more than anybody, I mean, I know Dudley and those guys, but I mean, it, Again, dude, how much success you've actually had in Pontchartrain is just truly remarkable, man. It really is. And so, but tell us a little bit about, though, because you fished Pontchartrain, dude, in its freaking heyday. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you. I kind of call it like the last tail end of the real heyday. So Krieger caught that record fish in 99. That was January of 99. So that had been the beginning of 99. And, um, and I was at a right of one, one hundredth of an ounce short of 12 pounds. So that's a, that's a pretty significant fish. I don't know if that'll ever get broken again. What, what, uh, who knows? We'll see. But so that was 99. I went on that charter with Krieger probably in 2000, if I had to guess, um, and then right about eight months after Krieger caught that, a kid named Jason Trulier, who was a shrimper for the Wrigley's, he tells me this story all the time and it doesn't change. You know, you know, it's story's true when it, when they tell it 20 times and it never changes. He said he saw Dudley at the fenders on the highway 90 bridge, which is the car bridge that crosses the Wrigley's every morning. So he's going out for the Wrigley's shrimping every morning. 
and you see Dudley in a spot nine mornings in a row, you know he's up to something. And one day when he they caught their shrimp early or he had the day off or whatever it may have been, he took the croakers that he caught that morning and just went and tied up to the uh, wooden fenders. And he he's a he, he's a fisherman. Don't get me wrong, but he's not like a heavy duty angler. And he all he I just love talking to him about it on the excitement of his face when he relives that story. He said he was catching six and seven pounders all day. It was unbelievable. And he ended up catching one. I think it was eleven. Is it either eleven two four, eleven three four? I'd have to Google it. And that was the third biggest trout. And that was in September of the same year. And that was so Krieger caught his on Highway 11. This 90 bridge I'm talking about is about three and a half, four miles away. And then in 2001, so in 2000 was still a banner year. There was a lot of seven, eight, nine pounders being caught. And then 01 in April, Guggen's caught one 10.02, and he was in eighth place at the time, which was the eighth biggest. And then like six days later, and I was also on Highway 11. Um, Dudley caught one 10.60, which ended up, and then Calcasieu was catching like multiple nine and 10 pounders and they were getting into record books. <clears throat> and then, um, it, before you knew it, Terry's fish was an eighth and out of the top 10 within like a year, which was crazy. And then oh one was good. That's when they caught the 10 pounders. Oh two was good. And then it was just a steady fizzle of just, you know, we literally were going out there. And like I said, I caught the tail end. So I was learning how to fish Highway 11, which is a very, very complicated place. Like the trestle, a lot of people think like, oh, the lake's real hard. I struggle on the trestle. Well, learn the trestle first before you move over to Highway 11. Highway 11's a whole nother animal. It's a lot harder, a lot more casting precision, a little bit more tide sometimes right there. It's just a lot more complex. Anytime you're fishing for bigger fish, it's harder. It's just the way it goes. And it's it's really a funny place when they do stage up on there. And then we don't get them there every year, but when they do, it's always a different class of fish. So the trestle's usually a pound and a half to a three-pound fish. You'll get an occasional four or five-pounder on there, but... They're a pound and a half to three pound. And in the Highway 11 bridge, I've seen seasons on there where they literally start at 18 inches and they can, and the sky's the limit. You know, like every fish you catch is three pounds or better. It's just unreal. It's a very strange thing considering it's only 50 yards away from the trestle. It's just like the big fish separate themselves from the schooling fish or the smaller ones. And then they just hone in on it and take, take over that little area. But so when I started learning how to fish Highway 11, it really was the ending of it, like the kind of the tail end. And it just, the fishing just got a little bit, as far as the big ones, it just each year got worse and worse and slower and slower to catch the big ones. Um, no, not even close to any real records were being broke for a while and really since then. And then Katrina hit in 05, which sparked just an incredible, incredible fishery for everybody across the state of Louisiana and probably the, the surrounding states and a lot of six, seven and eight pounders being caught again, but no record fish. But it, I would say after Katrina for those three years, we probably caught more three to five pounders than I've ever in my life seen. It's just, we weren't getting I, not many of those stories that them nine or 10 pounders were happening for whatever. I don't know what the magic is where all of the stars need to align to make something like that happen and the 
late 90s through the early 2000s. I personally think it's a perfect salinity mixture of, you know, the, the Mississippi River and having maybe some drought years where some of those fish will come into an interior like that and stay around. I'm really not sure. I mean, there's something magical about the Mississippi River because that's what makes Louisiana, without doubt, the best trout fishery in the country. Maybe not for bigger ones, but when we have those years were heavy drought years through the late 90s. Um, we had Hurricane George in 98. Maybe that had something to do with it. And um, it's definitely something to do with it. You got to have some fresh water and some salt water, but you don't, I don't know. You definitely, what we're dealing with right now, five years of rainy, rainy seasons, five years of a opening of a spillway in a row. This is definitely what you don't want because you got to have salt to breed those big trout, as you know more than any with how salty the water is in South Texas. So with that being said, though, I mean, like what makes, so you were talking about like Highway 11 and the trestles. I mean, like in terms of structure, was there something already existing there? I mean, like what, like what's the difference in terms of characteristics? Cause I'm thinking like internally, like if I'm fishing like Jacksonville or if I'm fishing in South Carolina in a Charleston complex with again, some, the, the 17 bridge or even in North Carolina and where they have some like deep water, high river or high flow, uh, those types of things is, was there something existing was in terms of deep water structure? Like what, what was it? Cause to the bird's eye and to everybody else who's driving across it, it's a bridge. Right. So the big difference is, and what makes the trestle the easiest and probably the most consistent, I will say the trestle is the most consistent out of all of the bridges. It was a wooden train bridge back in the, you'd have to Google it. I'd say 1940s, 80s, I mean, if not 40s to 60s, somewhere in there. And then they built the concrete bridge, which is the train bridge now. So a lot of that wooden rubble is underneath the bridge. So when we fish it, we don't throw on, we don't throw the lure under the bridge. You would just go through a gazillion jig heads. There's almost every section is full of just rubble down there. So we fish it almost more like a concrete reef where we throw at it right up to the snags and work it off the bridge the causeway highway 11 the old twin span the new twin span that's a different animal the cast and accuracy becomes extremely crucial those fish they will pattern themselves on those bridges that i just named the trestle isn't so pattern it's not they just don't get in such a hard pattern each day but those other bridges if they're on the back right side pole you have got to hit that pole every cast and then the next day the tide could be doing something different and you realize they're on the front left side pole whatever it is so when i'm approaching let's say highway 11 for instance it's four it's, it's i think it's four poles maybe five square poles that support the bridge exactly replicated every 10 yards or maybe 10 feet to the next section of poles Square poles, probably uh, 18 inches by 18 inches, maybe a little bigger. And there's about a three-foot gap in between each pole. And I really believe, and I'm pretty sure of this, they get in between those gaps to, you know, the big fish like the, a current break, and they'll use that to um, break the current. And so if I'm, if, I got, if I'm making cast, I'm throwing it under the bridge, all the way through the bridge to almost the very last pole, even past the last pole that way by the time it hits the bottom it's in line with that last pole and i want to work it 
exactly parallel down all four of those holes because those fish will set up in, in any one. And if I miss my mark by like 15, 18 inches on a cast, I will reel it in as fast as I can and, and throw it again. I've been doing it so long. I can put it where I want it eight out of 10 times. But for a novice, they're just not going to be able to hit that spot day like, like section after section after section so we got that trolling motor on a good clip we sweep it down one set of poles i knew i made a good sweep and hit every, you know i was really close to each little gap in the bridge and then my trolling motors flow into the next one right in rhythm to make a cast right down the next one and make that exact and it's a timing thing if you to make your cast too early at a poor angle on your retrieve you're going to be pulling it away from the pylons if you make it too late when you go to sweep it around the bridge, you might snag the pollen. So you got to find that perfect like timing angle to where when it hits the bottom and you begin your retrieve back, you're coming like a straight line down all four or five of them poles, however many it is, I forget. And that's how the twin span, same concept, but the poles were different back when I was growing up. It was three round poles and you had two spans. You could fish a southbound lane and a northbound lane. And it was three poles. So if the tide on that one, the three poles were more separated. So if it was a light tide day, I used to like to throw the lure at an angle where I could bring it through those pylons. If the tide was moving kind of swift, I would do it more like Highway 11, where I just come along the pylons. Because if the tide was too fast, you wouldn't have enough time to bring the lure through the crack in the pylons. It would the tide's going to throw you into one of the pylons where you'd just be snagging a bridge a lot. The causeway is almost identical to the twin span. It's probably a little bit easier to fish because the thing in the causeway, the twin span used to be lower. So you'd have to make like a roll cast, underhand cast. Causeway is a little taller. You can make overhand cast, a little bit easier for fishing two or three people in a boat. And the causeway doesn't have tide per se over there. I mean, you have some kind of light current, but my end of the lake you know the, the three bridges it's a suction zone as if you look on a map like Pontchartrain bottlenecks there so that's where your bigger velocity and tide's gonna be so we were playing tide and wind and waves and depth of water where the causeway you play waves a lot harder because the, the lake's a lot bigger over there so if it blows 12 miles an hour that's not good like 12 mean like 12 is a beautiful wind on on the other side but 12 miles an hour on that side of the lake when it's 26 miles across with i don't even know how long from east to west 60 miles it don't take much to give you a two-foot roller coming in so you play and you do play with the wind a little bit but with the virtually no tide you you can really stay in contact with your lure you can kind of feel a bite a little bit easier it's a little a little bit easier i would say but causeways deeper too our bridges are Average depth about 11 foot. The causeway is probably about 15 to 16. So the deeper it is, the harder it's going to be. The more tide you have, the harder it's going to be. So one key thing I could say when you a lot of like a lot of people fish the causeway in these three bridges. But a thing that we used to do a lot was fish the 90 bridge that we talked about earlier with plastics and the Seabrook bridge with plastics. And now you're talking 20, 25 foot of water with a extremely high velocity tide. I used to like those areas haven't been good in the last four or five years, just with the Missago being closed and high rivers. But when those, when the fish used to be there, they were some of the biggest fish in the state, definitely in Lake Pontchartrain. And it was so deep and a wild thing. When I tell people these stories, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. 
we used to fish four and five inch lures on a one ounce jig head and you couldn't even when you go to lift that up off the bottom it's so much weight folding your rod over you don't know when the hell it's a bite or not anyway you know so it's like every like lifting up a one ounce jig head with the plastic resistance and that much depth it feels like an 11 inch trout is on it every time you go to lift up so i did a lot of uh, imaginary hook sets when i used to fish like that but that's that's what we used to do i a one ounce jig head man it was at the end of the day doing that your arm was tired and you could only do that on tide changes because those are true suction zones the you know the wrigley's and the industrial canal i'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors as you know we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout as well as our conservation fortunately for us mirror lore texas custom lures and the original custom corky support that same passion which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. Yeah, so I've known you for, what about maybe 10 years? Yeah. Over 10 years? Sure. When like you that? call it that, you were the first, like, you, you were the first big trout catcher of a matrix shad with that green hornet with that like seven seven eight pounder somewhere in there that's when we met and so i've known you for that long and and obviously lived on the south shore but dude listening to you you're a freaking technical and I, i like to think of myself as a pretty technical angler when it comes to like you know different techniques and jerk baits or corkies or top you know and, and understanding a little bit more about a fishery but you know your fishery, dude. Like, it is ridiculous, like, the amount of knowledge you're throwing down right now. Yeah, like, and I, I get a lot of people that follow us all the time. Like, you and I doing this podcast, we probably get a lot more viewers if we were talking about just how to tie a polymer knot or something yeah. right now. I know this is, like, super advanced stuff right here. So, the anglers that are relatively advanced here, this is really good information, you know. I know we're skipping over about... 950 steps to get to this point but people that do um you know like and i talk about this all the time people that fish let's say corpus christi or something we all know those big trout love the grass flats and wade fishing i get it but i guarantee you there is a man-made canal system in there or a there's a bridge that holds 14 foot of water somewhere around there whatever it is and you take these deep water tactics there those fish don't just live on the grass flats. I agree. Grass flats is more fun. When I go to Florida, I like fishing the grass flats. You know, it's just enjoyable. I love topwater fishing, jerkbait fishing. Lake Pontchartrain's got it a little. It's okay. But if I'm going to Florida, I'm not really wanting to jig deep because it's I get to do something I don't think to do on a regular basis. But the places, anytime I go to Florida, and I've been to all of the, a lot of the cities on the Panhandle, Destin, Panama, uh, Pensacola. I go to the first bridge with 15 to 20 foot of water. Cause I know, I know what I'm doing with that. And I've caught multiple four and five pound trout doing that. I've had one in Destin. I remember on the Brooks bridge, which crosses Fort Walton. My wife had it. I got it. So on one of our dockside TV, TV episodes, you can see the fish cause we forgot the net. I'm trying to bear hug the fish with like a t-shirt 
my wife's trying to flip it. I'm like, you're crazy. Don't flip that. It's like a really a legit big fish. And you can see the fish. I watch that video every once in a while just to get a close eye on it. It was, it was a six pound clash, you know, and that's us going completely blind to an area that we don't even know what we're doing, taking this method of fishing with plastics and catching a five pounder, you know, people that, and these other cities that we're talking about in Florida, like those fish are very smart. You do the same thing with like some big croakers or something like that. They obviously have nine and 10 pound fish under there, you know, but it's just, my point is these methods and tactics, they work everywhere for deep water. And I know if I went to Corpus and I started and was on the boat, yeah, I'd hit the grass flats first, but if I saw a bridge or an industrial canal, I'd really really enjoy seeing how it worked over there because i mean a speckled trout's a speckled trout they pretty much act the same across the whole country it's just what does that estuary hold for them to live in and and florida they have such beautiful grass flats that make it easy for them to target their prey but the places that what the suction zones they have there with bridges the big trout hang out there too yeah and so fishing in jacksonville I went with my buddy Eddie Cabler and Brian Dutcher and we fished up there and kind of, you know, talking about that is just pulling up to different structure, band-made structures and really fishing those hard and that tremendous amount of current. And so, dude, those fish were sitting right on the pylons. Mm. And it's interesting because you shared that one with that you caught in Destin, but outside of that, a trout is a trout is a trout here at Gulfport Harbor. Great example of a deep water fishery. It's like a micro ecosystem right here in the Mississippi Gulf coast that has a lot of deep water capability. I don't know if you've ever fished it, but you need to get your butt over here because. Yeah. That's one place. Like I really want to fish on the, on, on the Mississippi coast is right there at Gulfport Harbor. Cause that place, I can just look at it on a map. And after talking to multiple people like you, you tell me about how the layout is. And it is, that is what we fish every day. It, you know, our, that whole Chalmette fishery where the Great Wall is, that's all industrial built canals, which all you're doing is trying to work a ledge. It's usually the key with a lot of rocks. And, you know, rocks provide heat from the sun. We play off of rocks a lot. That's a big thing. And when you got areas with 40 foot of water and flats or little rock jetties that come up to four foot of water, I'm very used to that. I mean, that is a big harbor though. Like I can see, like if I put seven hour days on that, it would take me seven days to really even say I covered that whole thing. And that's the thing with deep water fishing, you have to go a lot slower than shallow water fishing. So it might only be a one acre area you covered. It's going to take you five times as long to cover that if it's 15 foot of water versus three foot of water where you could just burn a spinner bait and just fan cast it with a spinner or top water or something. You can cover the whole zone, you know? So you mentioned, and I want to segue a little bit, man, because I know we're, you got a Pelicans game to go to or watch or whatever. Yeah. And so, but um, I wanted to segue though a little bit. You kind of mentioned it. Y'all went to Destin, you and Christy <clears throat> film a Dockside TV episode. And so you are Matrix Chat, man. And so, Talk to us a little bit or share a little bit how Matrix Shad really came about. Okay, so uh, most people that's followed us for a while know that we, well, A, it all started from my first job ever at 15 years old was at the local um, tackle shop where all of the, lo the local legends hung out. 
that's where it all started. And then um, my next job, I, I worked at Academy some, went to college, got a degree, oddly enough, not even for, for this, but oddly enough, it was in sports marketing, which is, I, I can't think of a degree that goes into what I do more, but I really did, took that degree because it was the easiest way for me to get a degree. But oddly enough, it ends up happening what we do for a living. And when I got out of college, I had an opportunity to lease out some land where a boat launch was, and I leased out the land, and I built a little shop there and ran a kind of like a small marina for five years with a boat launch and got into the nightmare of a live shrimp business, which is very hard work. I tell everybody all the time, that was my boot camp of life. And you, I, I had met most of the employees you know, really good people from magazine, um, people like Tony Taylor and Chris uh, Tibulay with Martian Bayou and Louisiana Sportsman and and taking them fishing before, done articles with them. And, and uh, a lot of the store owners I had just dealt with, you know, the local store owners like Gus and Shags and Pugulas and with those guys. And they all would get, you know, you get to know these guys who's been in business for 40 years, some of them. And they, they just give you advice. You make friends with them. You just learn. I'm like a sponge with a lot of things. I listen to what people say, you know. And um, so with the marina, and we're dealing with the entire community. We were dealing with the entire fishing community at some point for that five-year run. And we got hit with the BP oil spill, and they shut down the pretty much almost the entire fishery of Louisiana, like Pontchartrain was one of the last people to, uh, last estuaries to get closed down. And I remember seeing everybody from everywhere came through us at some point that year that liked to fish cause they couldn't fish. I remember even seeing Bootsy Toops, who's a grand Isle legend coming fishing in Lake Pontchartrain cause they, everything was closed down. It was really cool. Um, to see just like, it was wild. Like if you tell people they can't fish, they're going to do what they got to do to go fishing. You know I mean? These people are taking two and three hour rides to go fishing. Anyway, my point is we just started meeting everybody in the community and obviously with BP, you know, funding a lot of every business out there that was anywhere correlated with the oil spill. And we were directly you know, affected by it, obviously was getting funding from BP and, um, our first check that we got funded with, I, um, actually our first check we got funded with, I used it to build the bait shop a little bit nicer. And then, then they offered to settle up with us and the settle up check was $25,000. And, uh, some people didn't want to sign off for that. And some people just took it and took the 25,000 and ran. If you didn't run with it, you're going to be tied up in litigation for five years and dealing with it. Did we deserve more? I don't know. This isn't a judge or jury room to decide. But what I knew, if I took 25,000 and it's going to take me five years in litigation to go after more, I was like, I still got, it's going to be a lot of work regardless. So let's just take the 25,000. Let's get into the manufacturing business. We'll try to turn this money they're giving us into the, into more instead of waiting around in litigation for five years. I felt like I knew just about everything I needed to know on a three inch paddle tail swim bait, considering that's all we use for 15, 20 years. That was our thing. We used to use a lot of hybrid flurries. Um, we used to use a lot of Dudley's um saltwater assassin was a big one we used to use and 
you know, our lure, although it's not like the most, like, I mean, it's, it's got some generics to it. Those were three of the lures that we liked a lot. And we kind of wanted to have the toughness of like a Dudley and the, some of the, the tail of like a, um, uh, a saltwater assassin and a hybrid and, and some of the colors, you know, and that's just, that's manufacturing now. I mean, every once in a while you see something that's a complete innovation, but it's not like we reinvented the wheel. We just took something that's already there and tried to make it just a little bit better in our eyes. And I'm not saying it is, I'm not trying to say those lures aren't, that's not what I'm trying to say, but there was everything can have be a little bit better with this or a little bit worse with that or a little bit better here. And we just try. we wanted to make something and having the Marina, I'm like, why buy the other products when we can just manufacture, but why buy them and sell them out the Marina? We'll just manufacture it and sell our own. And the other thing is, you know, the biggest part about the labor of the manufacturing business is actually putting them in the bag, you know? So we'll make 10,000 lures at a time. Then we got to drop them in a the bag. Well, in the Marina business, you're busy at 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. And then you're busy again when you close from like four to six. The rest of the time you're sitting there watching TV. So I was like, well, I'm fine with everybody working here watching TV, but why don't we just get into something where we've got a real nice, easy thing to keep us productive while we're just waiting on, you know, the, the um, afternoon rush. So that was kind of my thought process was to kind of um, – multitask per se you got to be at work anyway we're not really doing anything physical during those hours now we can do something uh during that time that's productive and we had the funding to do it because it's very expensive to start this the cut of mold is very expensive um and that was really the key and i knew we could market it i didn't know it would ever become this i felt pretty confident this would be in my life forever I didn't know if it'd be my full-time job for 20 years and time will tell if that'll be the case, but I felt pretty confident and the Marina really helped out by dealing with the community day in and day out. And they know we've always told the truth with everything. We've met good people like you and you, you know, and we just knew all of the right people and being nice and kind and truthful with everybody over the last 15 or 20 years. And it's just not me. I mean, it's a whole group or, crew of like the matrix family um we they know if we say this color's working today we're not bsing you know and I'm, i'll tell you i'd be the first to tell you like when i made the matrix if i felt like it was tearing up a little bit too much and it wasn't that durable i would have recut the mold or use a different grade of plastic like i'm not i get samples of products all the time like we have a pretty extensive line at matrix shed now of all kinds of stuff but I get so many things that I, that we test out or try or prototypes and I just scrap them because I can't put our truthfulness or whatever behind it. You know, like if I'm only going to use things that I would feel confident in using myself, you know, and some of the items we actually cut the molds for from scratch and some of the items that we deal with are just generics that we might change the hooks on it or some color schemes, you know, but the bread and butter of the organization is matrix shed that's you know a majority of the sales and stuff that we make and what we're known for and that mold was drawn on a pencil and paper and cut off a cnc machine and 
ran with it ever since. And a lot, like I said, a lot of the molds we, we do do, we cut them from scratch. And uh, that's a complicated and expensive process. It's a lot easier just dealing with a generic. But if it's a generic, you know, everybody's kind of seen it already, you know. So I remember, though, I mean, when you first started and came out, I mean, you were hand pouring them, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've uh, I've burnt my feet on plastic, <laughs> melted out of the microwave many times in my life. We had a we had a one shooter mold, but we had two of them, so I could shoot with one pull off. It's a syringe for people that's not familiar how uh, how like a prototype injection goes, but it's real similar to like a doctor giving you a shot, a syringe shot. You're gonna melt the plastic, and the plastic's pretty neat. So the plastic comes in a jug of milk. It looks very similar to milk. And when you, you got to put it in the microwave to get it to a, I forget the exact temperature to a certain degree. And it turns into like a jello and then you got to let it cool for a second. You can't just put it in the microwave the whole time. It's like, it's got to hit the jello. You got to stop for a second and then you reheat it again. And then it becomes like a more like a syrup, like a hot syrup liquid again to where it's soft enough to, um, suck into a syringe and inject into the mold. And it's a really neat process how it goes from like milk liquid to jello back to like syrup liquid. It's, I don't, I'm sure there's a word for that. I mean, I've heard the word sublimation before, but that's not that process. I, I don't think it has anything to do with that. You're not skipping a state, but, um, it was, it, that part's pretty neat. That's like the most scientific cool part of what we used to do. But yeah, we used to do them just like that in a microwave, shoot them, one in a mold and one in the other. I could shoot two at a time. And if I was really rolling, you could do about a hundred in a day. And so <laughs> that's, that's when I knew you, man. Yeah. So it was like the very first couple batches you came out with. You had some of the OG colors. Guggen green was yeah. my favorite, man. And, uh, you sent them here. And finally, I think you started kind of pouring more and more. And that's when we kind of got a, a little bit rolling here in, on the Mississippi Gulf coast. But it's funny, man, how, how much effort and dedication, dude, going into like just pouring that stuff and, and creating a plastic, right? So I have to ask you, though, like what is an actual day like now look like for, for you, you yeah. know, as a lure manufacturer? Yeah, now it's totally different. So obviously I'm not trying to go on the air and explain to everybody in the world how to get into the lure business, but I am a pretty nice guy and I'll give some tips for those that want to do it. You know, it was always a lifelong dream of mine growing up, looking up at people like Dudley and just knowing that this is even possible in America. It's just unbelievable. I mean, other countries, this isn't even possible. You can't do this for a living, but in where we live, you know, blessed by people like you in the service protecting this country. And I don't want to get on a tangent on that, but only in America, you really can work out of your house and sell manufacture of fishing lure for a living. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, but that's doing them one at a time. That's how I would highly recommend everybody starting. And the whole point of that was to, that wasn't really the sales part of it. That was to get it made and get it to very experienced anglers like yourself and get feedback from it. So when I'm pouring them, like I said, a hundred was about the best I could ever do in a day. It was more of like 20 in a day. And I was mailing them all over to all of the great fishermen I've met over the years to get all the feedback. And when I was just getting zero negative feedback, like everything was always positive. I was like, okay, 
it's time to make a, a run with this because to get a little prototype mold made that's only like a thousand dollars but you're never ever ever gonna make any money in this business shooting them two or four or six at a time like that's not the way you do it so once i felt confident that every i had some people that would support this product and um it's no different than companies like nike and under armor you know getting in in business with michael jordan or or you name who you name it joe burrow you know i'm, I'm not gonna say cam newton or something because we're saints fans around here yeah tiger you know it's the same thing so i gotta find the tiger woods of the fishing industry around the gulf coast luckily i've already made friends with a lot of them and i know who to target i get it in their hands and i get the greatest feedback in the world and then when i so then we then we come out of pocket now we spend some money and we buy what we call a master mold which our mold can shoot like 50 lures at a time. And we only, when we do a color, we do a minimum of 10,000 lures on one color. And then, so now a typical day for us, we still do bag a lot of our own lures a lot of times. We have two factories that deal with it. One factory, when we get it in, it's already, the plastic's done. It's in, it's in a plastic bag, UPC coated, ready to go. The, and we deal with another factory to where it just comes us in big bulk boxes like the 10,000 at a time and we spend a lot of time bagging uh, I always tell my wife when she's teasing me like will you help me bag these I'm like that is below my pay grade nowadays but she's like you better get your you know what over here and help me bag these things so even the boss has still got to bag them sometimes man but I try you know the thing is marketing is the key to everything like the best thing for us to be doing is on the water shooting videos showing people how to use this product when to use this particular one in what situation why we chose this color today and just keeping it out there letting people see it in action that it works and when to do it and you know our videos are we're trying to teach people some things and we're trying to show that our product works you know it's a dual purpose there but there's days where i'm still bagging lures pouring them one at a time those days are over with i could probably dig up the mold somewhere in the closet that microwave i don't know if it made it all the way here i, I really probably should have kept that original microwave um you know what that might be in my garage i'd have to i think it is actually i might be lying i, I might have kept that because that would have been hard to throw away that's pretty good keepsake there i will text you about that tonight and see if it is where i think it is but uh typical day typically nice weather day we're going fishing in the morning for sure we live right there on lake pontchartrain boat the the main office is on lake pontchartrain and we have a big warehouse in baton rouge so we leave our office which is on uh, the house home slash office which is on lake pontchartrain in a back canal we go fishing probably three times a week is probably average and we fish anywhere from Bayou Lacombe all the way to Violet is about our range, the Lake Bourne rigs. And we do our little fishing. If it's terrible, which trust me, we have bad days all the time, the camera doesn't get pulled out. If it's mediocre and we need a video, we'll pull out the camera. If it's really good, we always pull out the camera. We, if it's a good day where I can hurry up and get some footage and talk about why we're doing this and where we are and whatever we always have the camera on us so typical day i don't fish too hard or too long anymore because there's always so much office work to be done so if i'm we leave the house at six i'd like to get back by 10 or 11. let's say we got a video made 
back into the office, my wife maybe do uh, fill all of the internet orders and whatever, some few store orders that we may have that day. And I'll start cutting and editing in a video. I'm getting fast enough at it now. I can have an ed a video finished, edited from the day of fishing and on the World Wide Web by around like four o'clock PM. And then by then, by that time, it's time to pick up the kids from daycare and, you know, we just play it by the weather. If it's a bad weather day, like today, it's office work all day. If it's a great weather day, we all almost are always fishing in the morning. You know, um, that's the beauty of the business running out your house. We don't have to do the office every day. So it's either fish some days, if it, we might fish all day and just do the office work the next day, you know, so it's really weather dependent. And some days I don't like you at all yeah. because you text me, man. <laughs> <laughs> and you pepper me, man, with uh, all these different pictures, especially the one recently. I'm sitting at my desk, Air Force guy, driving a desk, unfortunately. Um, and we were supposed to do this podcast like a week ago, two weeks ago. And so we kind of edged it in here, especially with the Biloxi Boat Show coming up. So we knew we'd see each other. But... The microphone gets to you and you go out fishing that afternoon and as soon as you get the microphone yeah you're um taking pictures and you're peppering me with all these different uh with all these different fishing pictures man so it's killing me dude and so but it the cool thing is is knowing you again for those 10 years going to hang out with you and chris roberts and steve wicks up there in dockside marina you know, and kind of seeing the five-gallon buckets full of matrix shad there. Chris, pull what you want. Nope. And then I'd, I'd pull what I need, and you'd kind of tell them, oh, man, don't worry about the cost, and I'd leave you a 40 on the on the. That's on the right. Seat, That's right. Yeah. I remember that. I oh, remember yeah. that. Okay. And, sis, you don't owe me nothing, and I'd find money somewhere. <laughs> and yeah. I had a pretty good idea where it came from. That's right, man. But that's part of it, though, because you supported me, and I support you, and that's kind of what – at least our relationship has been for over the course of that decade, you know? And so I appreciate that, brother. I really, really do. And so I uh, admittedly don't use your products enough in the, in the, in the state of Texas catching some, you know, hopefully or targeting some bigger fish, but, and I apologize for that, but uh, on the same token as man, you've always been there for me. And I appreciate honestly, man, your candidness of people that may be wanting to kind of have this dream of doing whatever they want within the fishing industry, dude, just grabbing a bull by the horns and going and getting after it. But I'll always cherish those times sitting in Dockside Marina with you and the guys just kind of sitting there talking, fishing and looking at the millions of pictures or the pictures all over the walls of developed film of just all these different anglers, man, with these huge Pontchartrain trout, man. That was, those are timeless memories for me, man. So thank you for that. Yeah. And I'm, you know, like our friendship and the way you and I treat each other. And that is the key to business, no matter what it is. You know, I do believe Matrix Chad is a very good lure. There's a lot of good lures out there. The key to our success is that we do everything we can to treat everybody correctly and kindly. And we are so grateful for the people that have stood behind Matrix since day one those that use nothing but matrix thank you so much people like you that use matrix a lot and other lures you don't owe us to use nothing but matrix it's totally understandable i've had some instances of people we've really taken care of over the years that just like jumped on other 
lure companies bandwagons which is a little offensive but look life goes on it is what it is and it makes me more grateful to the people that really have stood behind us through all of the years and without like i said back to the uh, nike and under armor without those guys and those listening know who they are that's really they catch a nice fish they might only fish once a month and they're all excited and they're posting it all over social media or whatever we that is the key man and that's there's some people out there that we give free product to and they know why we do it is because we we wouldn't be here without them and some people that maybe not can't fish quite as often we but really do everything they can to help promote and put it out there. You know, we try to give discounts to it. It's, it's a fine line of, I mean, we got to sell it to somebody, you know what I mean? I can't give it all away, but I'm such a given person. If I really put a number of how much product I've get, I give out a year, it's, it's a big number. Yeah. So we're here at the Biloxi boat show and, um, tell us a little bit, man. I know you have some things that are coming out. So, just real quick, uh, tell us kind of what some new things that you guys have coming up from Matrix, man. Yeah, so it's going to be, most people's been to a show that we've been at before, and we're kind of known for having just a whole bunch of lures thrown all over a table. It just looks like a big old worm bar out there, and that's that's how I like to do it. Like I discussed before, the expensive and hard part is putting them in a bag. I don't like bagging lures, so I just bring them loose. You get to mix and match what you want. We got the crawfish, the brush hogs, the matrix, the vortex. They get, that's probably a thousand pounds worth of lures on two tables out there right now. You get to mix and match whatever you want. You can, um, it's 50, 25 packs, 50 packs. I hadn't even made the price sheet yet, but it's typically, I think a hundred's $25, 50 15. And you get to mix and match all your colors. People like that. That way they can get, you know, a lot of product. And they don't have to be stuck with just one color. Um, we got, and now we, we've dabbled into the hard bait business a little bit. We didn't go crazy, but we got some suspended jerk baits and some top water, some stuff that we use a lot and we knew that would work. I'm not trying to be like Rapala and have a gazillion hard baits, and it's just so hard to keep up with. As we most know, we love that crappie fishing. Um, we, we carry a nice little swim bait for crappie. A little two-inch bait. We got four colors here for that. But the big thing that we've really been pushing a lot lately, and we're getting a lot of good response from it, is that Matrix subscription box to where you get $50 worth of value if you were going to have to buy it on the internet, and it only costs you $30. And we mix it up every month of what it's going to be. And that's one thing with us. We're not always fishing the same style. We do a lot of different things from sight fishing reds, the crappie fishing, the bass fishing, the big trout fishing, popping cork trout fishing. We really mix it up a lot to where these subscription boxes always have a just a plethora of different items in them every month. So we send them out on the 18th of every month and um, you go to matrixshare.com to subscribe to it. But what people like the most about it is anything we come out with new or any prototypes that the stores might not see for a while, the subscribers get them first and they get to use them before anybody else will ever see them. And they really like that, which puts a little heat on us. We got to make new products a little bit more often than we normally do, but we don't mind doing it because we really are enjoying the subscription box thing. And the big thing right now for the February subscription box, we're doing what we call it the Matrix Swim Shad. It's a generic bait. 
There's a gazillion of them out there like it. Pretty similar to a matrix shed, but it's got a little slit in the belly if you want to rig it weedless. It's, it, you know, your typical paddle tail bait. We got in a five inch and a three inch. That's what's going to be going out in this month's box. And we have some samples of the colors that we have. Those will be for sale March 7th, but they'll be getting them in the box in February. We have them here if you wanted to look at them. But the big thing everybody's been talking about and wanting and looking for, it's I've been working on this project for two years. Like I said, when we cut a mold and we do something from scratch, it's a big investment and it's a big project. And that's that Matrix X Shed, which we had to cut a whole new mold for. It's the exact same dimensions as a Matrix Shed, same durability, toughness, same swimming motion. It's the same lure, but we cut it also with a belly slit so you can rig it weedless. But the magic to this lure is it's poured in like a pearl or maybe a clear and it, that's it. It just comes out as a very neutral color, almost like a prototype color. And then it has to get put on a post and these things are hand painted, the scales, the gills, the just everything on there. We don't put eyes on them because I'm a big believer in your tail, your jig is, get, is supposed to be the body of the bait. Your jig head is supposed to be the eye or the head of the bait. So when you put this new lure, this X shad on a like a golden eye jig head or a jig head that is representing eyeballs it looks so real and so natural and if i'm telling you like when i, I finally got in my first couple thousand of three different colors the other day and i was like oh i gotta get those to the biloxi boat show even though they won't be out in the subscription box until march is one and they won't even be for sale probably till april i just wanted people to see it because it it really, when I sealed it up in, in its bag that it's going to be in, it reminded me of like buying frozen cigar minnows or like frozen mullet in a bag. That's how realistic it looks. It's really neat. You'll, I'll show it to you in a minute. Yeah. Dude, thank you. No, I'm serious, man. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And not to be so, well, one, I can't wait to look at it. And I know we got to get going because we have a lot of different things to do and I, I'm mindful of your time. You know what I'm saying? And and I know you obviously got to go. I want you to be with family because you got to get back there. But I did want to ask a couple more questions. That's why I want to kind of cut a little short in that regard. But I want to ask you, I mean, like, um, what is like your biggest trout? My biggest trout is on video, believe it or not. If you Google, you if you YouTube Dockside TV old school, that's the first fish that we catch. It was 8.10. And it was at the Tights Rodeo in November. And that's why I know the exact weight is because it got weighed on a certified scale and everything. 8.10. No craziest thing about that fish. Most people will hear what I'm about to say. Like, oh, Chaz is a little, he don't, he don't know his numbers. That fish was 26 inches long. 8.10. If you watch the video, you'll see why it was an eight pounder and only 26 inches. It is still to this date, probably the fattest trout I've ever seen. Are you kidding me? I swear. I, I'll show you that too as soon as we're done. How the hell have I missed that, dude? Because uh, that's because we got so many videos out there. It's hard to find some of this stuff. I got you, man. Well, um, I did want to ask you another thing, though, because this I think it's also vitally important. It's with regards to your equipment. And so you didn't touch on it, and I want you to. And that is especially deep water jigging. Run us through a little bit, especially maybe your rod and reel pairing, but I know your rod is definitely something that you uh, are specific about. Yeah, I'm a big believer in whatever you feel comfortable with is fine, but 
I personally, I've always been a huge fan of that six foot three St. Croix Avid. It's a medium with a fast tip. I got several friends that kind of make it for me custom. Terry Wagner's is probably the best one that's like, he just cuts it just perfect. And it's just an awesome rod, but I'd say something around medium. I highly suggest, um, I like something closer to six foot, which is a really short rod for a lot of anglers aren't used to that. Seven foot rods are great for making really long casts and covering a lot of water. That's just not what we do with that deep water jigging. So you don't really need a long rod. The longer the rod, a little bit heavier, it's probably going to be on your hand. And, you know, I'm making a thousand casts a day jigging 15 foot of water. And you can see how vigorously we pop that lure. It'll, the heavier that rod, the more weight I got on me is it really will weigh me down. And my favorite reel and it breaks on me all the time. It's not the most durable. I'll tell you that now, but it is the most comfortable is that new. It's one of the newer Shimano Corrados. I forget. It's, it's got, it's a 50 spool. It's like built with a 50 spool. I don't know. It's the silver one. Uh, it was like two years ago. It came out. I'd have to look that up. Um, Chris will text exactly what it is, but it's, it's like one of the, it's the 50 series of a Shimano Corrado it was probably like the 2016 model or something like that. Remember the E seven was the green one. It was the one when they went to silver it maybe it's just really small to where when I palm that reel, like we discussed earlier and I'm watching that line. I also, when the lures fall into the bottom, I'll let the line rest on my finger while on its way down back to the bottom. It gives me another little subtle tap feeling. Just another thing. Like I said, watch the line, feel the line, look at the line, all of that. This is just another thing. And if it's a big gaudy reel, I can't use that for the jigging. Now I'll use a bigger reel for topwater fishing. I want more line on there, seven foot rod. That way I can cast it, cast it a country mile. But for deep water jigging and what we discussed mostly on this podcast, shorter rods, medium actions, fine. And a small bait caster and a bait caster is essential. That is very important for deep water jigging. Any, in terms of like your ratio though, like seven, one to one. I like it fastest, the fastest I can find. Uh, eight to one is what I typically find. I hear they got some like nine to ones out there now, but I haven't used one yet. The key the thing is, so when you pop the lure, pop, 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 and you want to hurry up and rail in your slack when it falls, just one turn of the, of the handle gets your slack back. That's important. That's why I like a fast one. And then when you hit a fish and he starts swimming at you, you can, you can reel in so fast with the high gear ratios, you can always keep tension on it. I personally don't understand why anybody want a slower gear ratio. I hear some people like them for crankbaits and stuff. The way I look at it, you can always slow down your hands. You can't go any faster though. So I never really did understand slower gear ratios. I'm sure. But again, I know what I know on fishing. Like we're pretty, like I said, we're really good at this deep water stuff. Any other things I'm all ears all the time, you know? So there's probably a, a, a reason people like six to one bait casters. I, I didn't, I, I didn't understand it. That's one of the things when I'm crappie fishing, I use a push button a lot 
because I'm so used to a bait caster and the way I palm that push button and I do a lot of deep water crappie fishing, but the gear ratio and everything's like four to one. So I pop it and I'm, yeah, I feel like a crazy man. I wish they'd make what an eight to one in that thing, but then I'd rail in the crappie like a hundred miles an hour and then you, it's not even fun, you know? I got you, man. Well, Chaz, brother, I appreciate it, man, for uh, being uh, on the podcast, man. I really do. I know we have uh, a lot, a really busy week and a busy weekend. So, again, dude, I really appreciate your time. I, I appreciate all the listeners. And I know this podcast, by the time it actually airs, is actually going to be a little bit late because it's Thursday and we're going to get it out there. But we definitely want to do, and that's on me. Uh, again, we were trying to get something going, but we just couldn't link up uh, times. Uh, but we definitely want to do it, man. So, Chaz, again, brother, thanks again for for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, for everyone else who kind of stuck around uh, and, and listened to the entire podcast, thanks so much for for sticking with us. But outside of that, if you are in the Mississippi Gulf Coast or in the Mobile area, so in the lower Alabama, Florida area, uh, we'll be also be at the Mobile Boat Show in March. So, But if you're here this weekend, uh, which is, what, the 7th, 8th, and 9th, uh, come check out Matrix Shed. Definitely come check out uh, our, our booth here at Speckle Truth. And uh, we'd love to just, honestly, man, just talk trout fishing. That's what we do. That's what we love to do. Come see our, our kind of live trout display. We actually ended up getting a seven-pounder, uh, believe it or not. It's like right at 27. I'd say almost maybe seven and a half. The thing is just huge. But it was donated by the Gulf Coast Research Lab over there at Southern Miss. And so we appreciate them in terms of letting people know and, and, and showing a live trophy trout, but not only that, talking about how precious and how beautiful those fish are. So again, we appreciate all the support for all of our listeners and all of our followers. And until next time, guys, tight lines, God bless. And always remember, take what you need and release the rest. Take care.